What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. A couple of things real quick. Toward the end of this episode, we've got two things. One, uh, we have a conversation with Deshante Parks about uh, civic engagement that you're going to want to really listen to. It's it's a pretty interesting conversation. But then the other thing is... Uh, Listen all the way to the end of the show because there's a special important announcement at the end of this show about the future of Majority 54. Now, with that said, Ravi, you have some interesting stuff to share. I promise this is unrelated to the announcement we have at the end of the episode because once you get to that announcement and you listen to what I'm about to say, I could see how one could think they're related, but they're not. But yeah, so I, this weekend, went into the mountains uh, of Costa Rica and did psilocybin, which is mushrooms. And I did like a critical, what they call like an ego dissolving dose. And as background, like you, I think, like I don't do drugs. Traditionally, I grew up around a lot of drugs as a kid. Everybody around me, like all the other teenagers in my neighborhood, including my brother, like everybody did lots and lots of drugs, including mushrooms and LSD and all the other stuff. And I always just made a choice as a kid that I just didn't do it. And I think that was a good choice. I lost a lot of friends to drugs. But over time, I've become convinced of, that this substance is really powerful and positive in many ways. Like, you know, Johns Hopkins, NYU, and many other institutions have been looking into, like, what these substances could do for people who are dealing with things like PTSD or trauma, et cetera. But also, I think their terminology is people who are, like, well people who are not necessarily, like, trying to solve for something clinically diagnosed, but just want to explore certain things. And so long wind up to say I did it. And Mm -hmm. there are people who this is for. And I think there are some people who it's not for. I am definitely one of the people who this is for. (laughs) (laughs) I I will be doing it again. You texted me afterwards. You said it was awesome. Lots of takeaways. Lots of takeaways. I think some of this stuff is so, I think Michael Pollan, the science writer who I love, who wrote a whole book about this stuff called How to Change Your Mind, which is brilliant. uh, He said that sometimes... In talking about it, language escapes you and you sound like you sound like you're just spitting platitudes, but he's like sometimes the cliche has meaning. Like it's almost like sometimes like using this stuff, you can there's certain things that are now cliche and have lost meaning, but are still really important that you almost like bring a renewed meaning to it. And I definitely get what he meant by, by that now. 
but like my experience was, you know, I, I put on eye shades for most of the time. So it was more like an internal experience. And I had this guide who was like an expert on how to take you through this kind of stuff. And yes, like when I had the eye shades off and stuff like that, there were like visual things like that. I was like overlooking a valley in Costa Rica where like the trees were breathing. And at one point, the whole valley, this is like, you know, totally green turns to autumn. <laughs> it was huh. just really interesting. But the biggest part of the whole experience was putting these things on and it was a very windy day, uncharacteristically windy day. And the wind, I kept like having these memories, things involving my dad and stuff like that. And the memories would come and I'd be really want to sit with these memories. But then the wind would blow the memories away. And at a certain point, I'm like having a conversation with the wind because like you just have it kind of dissolves your ego. If you look at the science, like there's this thing called the default mode network, which is basically where your ego sits in your brain. And what psilocybin does is temporarily suppresses that so that you just don't have an ego. So one of the byproducts of that is you could talk to yourself, but you don't really know it's yourself. It's very strange. So I'm talking to the wind at a certain point and I asked the wind, I'm like, basically like, hey, like I'm trying to negotiate with it to stop wiping away my memories that I'm trying to sit with. And at a certain point, the wind is like, I am you. And I started to have this conversation with the wind and for a whole period of time, like this whole idea that I was the wind was like 30 minutes of stuff and exploration. It was really interesting. But like the coolest part of it was I, I came in wanting to test myself at various phases of it with petty things that I knew I just, I know are petty about myself. And so as I sort of descend into the state, I would be like thinking about things that are petty and to test, like, do I care about this thing? And at a certain point, it's amazing. You're just like, I don't care. And I think one of the the many lasting effects afterwards is those things are all but gone at least now a couple of days later. They don't bother huh. me at all. It's very strange. But it's a very powerful substance. Obviously, it's not for everybody uh, there's a lot of reading that I did to to even make this decision in the first place. And I know it can sound silly and all that, but I, it was a very profound experience. And uh, I didn't have any of these scary realizations or anything like that, although that's always possible for people. It was just like a profoundly positive experience and one that I, I certainly will do again. And I, I credit a lot of people who are science writers like Michael Pollan, who had the courage to write about this in a sober way. Uh, and it definitely convinced me to 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 take the leap. So it was really cool. Well, did you come out of all of this with the same level of passion about the bills uh, that you entered it with? It's so, so funny. Shout out to Supriya. <laughs> I, I had I had this conversation, Supriya, if you're listening, and she said, um, she's a very lovely lady in my life who lives in London. That's kind of an announcement right there, you saying her name on the air. That's a big step for y'all. Yeah, it's an announcement. It is a big announcement. Uh, she says to me, there, there are two things that you're going to come out of this experience with. One is... Uh, she said, one is you're going to move from New York, which is something I've always played around with in my head. I'm always, I'm always moving from New York in my head. Uh, it's part of the reason why I'm here. And she was like, two, that you're going to no longer care about the bills. So I played a joke on her and called her afterwards and claimed I didn't care about the bills. And uh, it didn't last very long. But, it, but I did the next day while the bills were falling apart. Yeah, I was going to say, because you texted me about the bills. The day after you did mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> so. I literally went to the beach and uh, took a notepad, a journal, and started journaling and basically reminding myself of all the things that I, I like, the, the ego dissolving and all that. And 
and just left the game. I didn't watch the second half until the very end and was just like, all right, I'm committed, I'm committed, I'm committed to this. Uh, and she watched it for me. She actually FaceTimed from London <laughs> and showed me the end of the game because I couldn't get the game after that. I couldn't get on it. But shout out to her for infinite patience. She's now as much of a Bills fan as I am. So, That's impressive. Um, With that, we're going to get into the normal stuff here in a moment. We're going to talk trash. We're going to do news of the week. But we also had a couple of voicemails that we wanted to respond to about a couple of recent episodes. We'll start with two voicemails that we received um, about our episode where we spoke to a woman and her conservative father. Uh, So let's hear those real quick and we'll respond. Hi, how's it going, y'all? My name is Frank calling from Connecticut. And I just listened to the episode, uh, Conservative Dad and His Liberal Daughter. I, I love how they're able to um, still communicate and listen to each other despite their differences politically. But I feel like we did miss an opportunity, I think, by highlighting some of the goals or challenges that we're trying to overcome on uh, the liberal side of things. We could have, you know, challenged him to go and dig a little deeper to find out what it's about on Fox News um, that you might be missing. Hey, Jason and Ravi and whoever fields these calls. Uh, My name is Ryan. Uh, I'm a longtime listener and um, a union rep. I think that the idea that we would be confronting every single – you know, wrong take or conservative take that someone brings up that we would just jump on it and, and, and try to push back against the person. I don't think that's really realistic. I don't think it's, you know, uh, that helpful in these conversations in life to be doing that. And I think it was, it's a really easy way to turn people off and a way to get them to not listen to our message. That was great because those two voicemails, one sort of answers the other. Totally. I agree. Yeah. I, I love this last comment. Particularly because he he likes our approach, <laughs> well, because he's because he's a union rep, and that that's yeah. actually people may remember from that episode. That's really the window into persuading the gentleman who we talked to that that we found right. Like we had a, he was uh, he was a, a lifetime union guy, uh, I think union firefighter who has been voting conservative since like Reagan. And at one point in the conversation, we brought up the more conservative position on unions. And it was a little bit of, I don't want to say a blind spot, but I mean, but it was, it was, it was a blind spot in his, you know, unbiased knowledge about the two parties. And so what the first caller is referencing, I think, is that we didn't then fill in that information for him. We sort of left it for him and his daughter to talk about off air. And the second caller there, who is a union rep, I think saw that. And it's interesting. It's one of the points that we try to get across to people is that you can't win every argument and you you can't put people on the defensive. You've got to let them discover things for themselves. It reminds me of one of the things I learned in the five minutes that I was a trial lawyer was that when you are questioning uh, an adverse witness, what you don't want to do is go for that a few good men moment where they give you an opening and then you try and walk through the opening during the questioning. You leave that question open. And then when you get to the closing argument, you sort of fill in the rest for the jury. You answer for them. You say, remember he said this? You don't confront him about it on the stand or her about it on the stand. You fill in those details later when you're making your argument. And I feel like that's sort of what we were leaving room for his daughter to do. Totally. 
it's good to hear from people on this because sometimes we get criticized for it, obviously. Like there are times where we kind of quote unquote, let somebody say something and sometimes the audience gets irked by that. And I get it a hundred percent. You know, you take the time out to listen to this podcast and sometimes you're like, I just don't want to listen to that. I hear that enough in my life. So, and, and that's obviously, it's the give and take of doing the show. That's, it's why we don't every episode have somebody on like this and we try to pick our spots. And in particular, the most valuable versions of this are when the audience brings people to the table because that's real. And the audience is as much a part of this experience as we are. All right, next we have two voicemails uh, in response to our episode, Republicans in Risarray, which was about you know the speaker debacle and uh, the Republicans in the House not being able to get organized and uh, coalesce around somebody. Hey, this is Chris Wright um, in Ohio. I'm a first-time calling here. So on the Republican alliteration, I think the best you can do is Republicans in riot. Because it sounds disorderly, it doesn't give them any credit, um, and it kind of ties it to the uh, January 6th riot. The other thing I can think of is in rebellion, but it gives them too much credit. You know, they like the word rebelling. What are they rebelling against? Like reality? I don't know. Hi, this is uh, Sunny from Florida, and I think I have a good alternative to the Republican version of the Dems and Disarray. Uh, I said this to my husband a couple of weeks ago, and it was Republicans in ruin. And I think that's pretty apt for what's going on. I like it. I like Republicans. Uh, it, to me, it would be a Republican riot. Yeah. Uh, and then I like Republicans in ruin. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. With that said, <laughs> uh, let's let's talk some trash. So. I want to criticize a gathering today and and just talk trash about this gathering, which is Davos. Right? This is the World Economic Forum. It's been a thing going on for a while where like elite, mostly rich people and global leaders, sometimes political leaders, gather together to talk about the future and the past and all this kind of stuff. And they are like comically wrong often about where things are heading in the future. They basically missed like every major crisis we've had over the past 20 years, but they they're kind of the chin stroking like elder statesmen who claim to know everything. So I think this is an area where we can sort of find common ground with certain conservative critics of this, but I think it's all summed up in a tweet from Dan Pfeiffer who posted an image of Paul Ryan, Anthony Scaramucci and Kirsten Cinema all standing together. And Pfeiffer wrote, and this is at Davos and Pfeiffer wrote, this is an AI-generated image designed to trigger as many people as possible, which really made me laugh. Well, the thing is, is like I get that it, it because I've certainly been around these uh, back, not even back slapping, back padding uh, events where people come together and they, you know, talk about how wonderful they are, and then they they talk about these big ideas, but really they're all just sort of there promoting themselves. But you also sent this article, you know, written by this guy who has participated in it for several years, and he's rattling off all sorts of things that he claims have come from it, that all these trees that have been planted, all these emissions changes that have made, all these companies that have pledged to do things. So I guess my thing is like, it is easy to make fun of something where Paul Ryan and Kirsten Cinema and Anthony Scaramucci are, I mean, it almost feels in a way like that picture makes you feel like it's like Politicon, right? You know, but at the same time, I can see in theory 
why getting really powerful people together to in to at least in theory talk about how to use their platform to promote things that better the world i can see why that is theoretically a good idea but part of me is like why do we need davos like why don't we just use the un you know i used to work at the un there's plenty of places around that and like at least the un to me is a semi-representative body but i don't want to get into like whether davos is good or not i just think that there's something about the fact that scaramucci and paul ryan continue to have careers that to me is an indictment of like Davos. All I need to know about Davos is that those guys are there and that cinema who has a job that we elect her and pay her to do somehow is in Europe. Like, what is she doing there? We got a debt. We're going to talk about the debt ceiling. We got all these things going on. Is she like, maybe this is hopeful. This is a moment for hope because maybe she's building her private equity career. I think that's exactly what she's doing. I think she's doing the same thing there that Paul Ryan and Anthony Scaramucci, Mucci, Mooch are doing, uh, yep. which is because at the center, I guess, of Davos is, and because and, you make a good point, what distinguishes it from like a UN gathering is it is mostly private actors coming together saying, well, we are world beaters. We, you know, right. we are we are not world leaders, but we functionally are. Why don't we just solve these problems? Which I guess, again, I think is a good aspiration, but uh, it is also, I suppose, comes with a bit of hubris and probably some self-serving uh, actors. Yeah. And, and so I think she is there in her future private equity role, uh, you right. know, as as she gets market corrected quickly by Ruben Gallego out of the Senate. The Trump world really hates this gathering. Trump, part of his globalist critique, Bannon's globalist critique, is in part because of gatherings like this. Obviously, there's a not-so-subtle tinge of anti-Semitism around all that. Elon Musk, of course, weighed in uh, with a tweet claiming he declined an invitation to Davos because <laughs> there's no story that can't involve Elon Musk. Right. And uh, he's the opposite of the experience I described before, the ego dissolving. He's like as <laughs> if... Your ego dissolved and then lashed onto everything else, um, <laughs> almost like you know, like mud that you just can't get out of your house after like a muddy, rainy day. Like it's just everywhere. And so he claims that he was not he was invited, but he decided not to go because it was boring. And then the Davos organizers were like, "Yeah, you weren't invited." And it's just amazing. It's just like every story is an echo of the same thing, which is his ego latching onto something and him lying about something that's easily falsifiable so I, I i just i know this could have been an episode without elon but i just felt like i had to mention that <laughs> fair enough so jason never have i been more in need of athletic greens than right now so i've been working on my tennis here in costa rica very accessible anecdote and i <laughs> uh, i have this tennis coach uh this woman named camilla is amazing she was the number one tennis player in chile and now uh, runs tennis camp here. And she learned tennis in the military, which means I learned tennis using military tactics, which means for two hours every day, I run around while she shouts at me and I am a physical disaster. Athletic Greens, if you are listening, I need you to take the Athletic Greens jet and bring it here to Costa Rica because I need a resupply pronto before I fall apart. You know, I'm going to have to start mixing up my own Athletic Greens in the mountains of Costa Rica here. And Lord knows... I may get the dosage wrong. Sounds kind of like you have been, to be yeah. honest. Uh, 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, one of the things about going through life as me uh, is that it gives you the opportunity to talk to a lot of people about therapy. Um, because when you write a book where you spend most of the third act uh, in your therapist's office, uh, people rightfully feel like you're a pretty safe place to talk about therapy. And so I just wanted to say that I'm very grateful for that. I Just, just yesterday, I was uh, hanging out with a friend and we talked um, about what they've learned in therapy. And I tend to learn from other people's therapy when they tell me about it. Uh, and, and so this is just my way of saying, if you have never tried therapy or if you have, but you've been sort of lax about it lately, this is another way to get back into it uh, is better help. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash M54 today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. Let's talk about some news. We got. To, let's just set people up for this debt ceiling fight, right? So, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned last week that the United States will reach its existing borrowing cap of thirty-one point four trillion dollars on Thursday. As background, the debt limit is a cap on the total amount of money that the federal government is authorized to borrow to fulfill its obligations. And because the U.S. runs budget deficits, it spends more than it brings in. It has to borrow a lot of money, and once the U.S. hits the cap. This episode's airing on Thursday, the very day it's supposed to hit its cap. Treasury can use, quote, extraordinary measures. And those extraordinary measures can include things like suspending some investments, exchanging different types of debts, um, making hard choices about who to pay and not to pay. And all of those options could be extended, uh, exhausted by June. So, like, hitting the limit isn't like the catastrophic moment. It's when all of these extraordinary measures are exhausted. And Yellen said June is about when uh, things get real. And at that point, the U.S. will not be able to pay its bills. And that includes interest on payments to bondholders, which is a big deal. I know it sounds very technical, but that just means that like this full faith and credit of the United States is called into question. Military salaries, benefits, retirees, these types of things will just not be paid. And so obviously... Congress could lift this cap, uh, but as we've established now in the past few weeks, this is not a responsible group of people. So we could be heading towards calamity. What's fascinating to me every time this happens is that it the purpose of it by the Republicans is to force a negotiation over spending, right? They're, they use it functionally the same way they use, uh, you know, funding the government and passing a budget, right. right? It's like, if you want us to fund the government, we've got to have a, a negotiation about how much to cut the spending. Well, this is like their other bite at the apple. They say, but but it's so much more at stake. It's if you don't want us to wreck the entire economy and and just like cause massive unemployment and chaos, well, then we've got to cut spending. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. it is, I think I've made this analogy before on here, but it reminds me so much of the scene in Blazing Saddles where the sheriff, you know, takes out his own pistol and puts it to his head and <laughs> takes himself hostage. And people are like, he'll do it. Stand back. You know, and it's like they live in this country, too. Yeah. Uh, it's just 
staggering to me that this is now a part of just normal debate, that we just accept the idea that every so often the Republican Party threatens to like grab the 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 stick and and push the entire plane down into the ground. I mean, it's amazing to me. Right. And they now they pass a special rules package that makes it harder to lift the debt ceiling. I won't go into it. It involves this thing called the get part rule. It's very technical. But what they're asking for, this is like the language they're using is in order to lift the debt ceiling, they're saying they want structural spending reform, which you know probably reforms to things like social security and all things like that. And look, like there's all sorts of important conversations about the solvency of Social Security, which is, you know, may go insolvent by 2035, depending on your definition of the word insolvent. And so there are major questions we need to answer. But these are the very same people who voted for tax cuts for the rich. We, we've, we've established on this podcast before, Republican presidents, including Donald Trump, are worse for the federal deficit than Democrats have been. And so they're they only. This is only. I think you. You. We called it. You, this might be your words that we have seasonal deficit hawks in the Republican Party. If there's a Democrat in power, then all of a sudden they care about the deficit. But when it's a Republican Party, they have no problem running up the deficit more than even Democrats. Yeah, I, I think like the messaging on this has just got to be like, this is crazy. Like these people are crazy. Like they they are taking themselves and everyone else hostage. And yeah, and and that you know combined with. Their entire platform now seems to be, let's make cuts to Social Security and Medicare, uh, which I don't think is a winning strategy. And so I think this needs to be talked about all the time. We, we shouldn't talk about it as the debt ceiling, because people don't know about that. The debt ceiling doesn't play a, a role in their lives on a daily basis. We should talk about it as their attempt to cut these programs that everybody loves. Yeah, what they will try to do is force a conversation about the federal deficit. And, you know, there, there are sympathetic Americans out there when they hear about, you know, how much we owe and all that. They could have a sympathetic audience. And I think it's important to remind people that they're more responsible for that than anybody else. And this is not how you have that conversation. You don't do it under duress and you don't play a game of chicken with the full faith and credit reputation in the United States. And so I think there's that, obviously. But it's important probably to end this segment just talking about what happens in June. What are the options? So one is... The U.S. could prioritize certain payments over others, so paying bondholders, for example, which obviously would be very politically hard to pull off. The U.S. could de default on its debt, which would rattle markets. The Federal Reserve could step in and buy some treasury bonds. That could be tough. Um, there are things that have happened traditionally. There's the 14th Amendment, which says that the validity of the U.S. debt shall not be questioned, and Obama's own lawyers disagreed over the meaning of that, so that's never been tested. Obama himself wrote about how they played around with an idea of minting a $1 trillion coin to pay off some of the debt, um, but he, in a 2017 interview, described that as wacky, and Yellen dismissed the idea herself, too. I was kind of looking forward to that version of this story. You know what I look forward to? I look forward to the movie about the the caper to heist the one trillion dollar coin. Imagine trying to get rid of that coin. <laughs> you know, I mean, because especially if I mean, in my mind, it's an enormous coin. It's like a it's a huge disc the size of like my yard. But right. it, but in reality, it's probably a coin you can hold in your yeah. hand. 
And that's well, yeah, you can mint anything. Fascinating. It yeah, doesn't even that, have to be platinum or anything. It could be a piece of wood. Like it, they, it's the U.S. government. If they say it's worth it, it's worth whatever they say it is. Right. I want to see that. I want to see that movie. I want to see the the one trillion dollar coin movie. Well, get writing. Good idea, by the way. One trillion dollar coin, and you could appeal to the crypto bros too. Yeah. Maybe we make it digital because then it's a hacking movie. There you go. I like it. I like it. Here's yeah. here's my last point that I would suggest people make when when this comes up. Uh, with people, which is, I would say, you know, I don't understand how it is okay to use the debt ceiling and the possibility of sending the American economy into ruin as the time to talk about structural spending on Medicare and Social Security. But during the national anthem is the wrong time and place to protest things. Right. Like one of them. <laughs> Do, seems like it has much higher stakes for other people than the other. It, it seems like an incongruent position. Well, uh, one trivial thing to end on here. I don't think we have to spend too much time on this, but I felt like we have to mention this gas stove debate. Uh, a study was published as a meta-analysis, 27 papers that showed that 12.7% of childhood asthma in the U.S. is attributable to gas stoves and ovens. And that prompted Richard Trumka Jr., who's the commissioner of the U.S. Product Safety Commission, to briefly entertain the idea of a ban on gas appliances before quickly walking it back. The Biden administration made clear they weren't going to support this. What I think is notable about this is that the right wing jumped on this. And Fox News and the National Review and all over the place, they have like, you know, an anguished restaurateur talking about what they would do if they couldn't have gas stoves. And Ron DeSantis is tweeting, you know, like a don't tread on me iteration of just like, don't, you know, come to my gas stove and all this. And so I mentioned all this to say there was no controversy. One person said something. That, yeah, we're not going to ban gas stoves. We don't have to talk about it. Like, there are things we should talk about in terms of ventilation and things like that. That's not this podcast. That's like for a Vox podcast or something. But what I find interesting about this and what I want our listeners to get practiced at doing is talking about how the right is only satisfied if their people are in a constant state of anxiety. And I would just assign them some reading I used to give to some of the younger kids in my schools, which is A Boy Who Cried Wolf, because that's all they want. They want their people anxious and fearful all the time. And this is such a perfect example of it. It's bullshit. Like, it's just totally bullshit. And they just want their people worried all the time. If I was a, even a conservative and, a, and an audience member of this, I would be offended. Like, it offends their, their own audience's intelligence. The Cried Wolf thing is a perfect uh, example and, and like a great, you know, highly accessible societal reference, like cultural reference that we should use more. Because this is literally... One member of the oversight board that would look at this kind of thing said, maybe this is something we should do. And then the chairman of it was like, we're not doing that. And then the president was like, we're not doing that. But people were like, oh, one member of this oversight agency, this appointed person that I, I had never even heard of the, of the agency until this controversy. One member said something and the Republicans acted like Biden mentioned it in the State of the Union. And it absolutely, that is what they do. They cry wolf. I think people should use that reference. Yeah, they did this around something around banning meat. I can't exactly remember the, the scenario. They do this all the time. And like, look, the role of the conservatives is supposed to be 
to criticize government overreach. Emphasis on supposed to be. But like as we know from DeSantis in Florida and just the entirety of the Trump administration, this they, they are not wearing a white shirt on this. But like in a world where they're supposed to play that role, and I look at, you know, these bow tie wearing writers at the National Review and things like that, they you just can't take them seriously. At some point the government is gonna overreach. And I'm sure it has overreached, including Democrats and Republicans, but they're not playing that role because they're they have no intellectual integrity whatsoever. And so I mention this because I really want our listeners to get practice at pointing this kind of stuff out because I think that I think people are persuadable on this. I think people don't like to be manipulated, and I think people are exhausted by outrage culture. And we're constantly being told that the left are the ones who are constantly whipping people into hysteria about Dave Chappelle or about this person or that person. And I want to remind people that it, it is the right who will not be satisfied unless you're constantly looking over your shoulder for the government. And these are people who cosplay with their fatigues and their guns, and they just they fantasize about the government coming for them, even when the government's not coming for them. You know, So I don't know. I don't have anything substantive. We could talk about electric versus gas stoves and all that. And obviously I'm prepared for that, but I, I don't think it's that much of it. <laughs> you're obviously you're prepared. That's impressive that you're even prepared for that. Well, you want to find a what there's the national fire protection association, July, 2020 report, Jason, that says that households that use electric ranges showed a greater risk of fires. That right there is why I could not do this <laughs> show without you, because there's no chance that I would have that information available. Uh, well, so. shout out to Emily Oster, who's an economist who has a substack. She actually went through this this report and was like, yeah, there's something to it, but they overstate it on the gas stove stuff. It's mostly about ventilation, actually. And there's an interesting wrinkle in the data around so much of this is coming from people who use gas stoves to heat their houses, which is you know lower income, more common in lower income Places, but it's, you actually can learn something from this. There's a nuanced discussion around stoves, which obviously the National Review is not happening having right now. I, I am convinced that there are 36 hours in a Ravi day. That's the, that's the only <laughs> way for you to know about that kind of thing. You know the you know what you told me that Jason that what? last fact the wind told me that <laughs> the wind knows a lot about fire. It's, it knows a lot about fires. <laughs> excellent, excellent callback. Also, a little bit of a Captain Planet thing happening there. All right. So uh, for Grab and Orr, talk to us about our Wisconsin Supreme Court seat. We've had Ben Wickler on here before talking about Wisconsin, great state party chair. You know, we've had some big L's and some big W's coming out of Wisconsin over the past few years. There's not a lot of elections happening in the country right now, but there is one very important one, which is control of the Wisconsin state Supreme Court is on the ballot this spring. And this could decide the fate of abortion rights, redistricting and more. Uh, And so we implore our audience, if you're in Wisconsin, obviously get involved in that race. But if you're not, uh, now would be a good time to go and donate to the Wisconsin State Party. And I think what we'll try to find in our uh, in our show notes, uh, we'll try to link to, and, and Jason, maybe uh, in your Twitter and mine, we could find a link to the actual candidates uh, involved here and see if we can get the money directly to the candidates. But uh, this is a critical seat. And if you remember... And one of those, like, I think it might have been 2017, we lost one of these seats even in a year when we were kicking ass elsewhere, and it, and it cost us dearly in the years to come. And so let's throw our energy behind this race, because there's not a whole lot happening, and, and this is one of those critical races in an out-year election where if our enthusiasm isn't there, it could slip past us. 
Right on. And there's a lot of you right now listening to this going, Ugh, it makes me sick because I don't like it when, you know, judicial uh, offices are elected. Uh, we don't either. Uh, we don't think that, you know, st- Supreme Court seats should be elected. But in some places they are. And, you know, that means we got to we got to win them. Well, I wish we have a referendum on this Supreme Court. I would take it over what we have right now. So yeah, it is that's a, a good point. For if, another if, day. Yeah, for another day we could debate the merits. I don't love judicial elections either, but I also don't love like this geriatric right-wing lunatic circus that we have going on at the Supreme Court level either. Fair point, fair point. Or either way, give give these candidates some money. We'll, we'll go to our Twitter and we'll show you how. You may or may not be able to hear from my voice that I've got a bit of a cold or something. And when Diana or I get to that point where we're really coughing, the person in that position oftentimes ends up having to go out to sleep on the couch because they have to be like in a spot where they can sit up while they sleep. And if you're in the position in this house where we have a a Helix mattress of having to leave the bedroom to sleep anywhere else... It just makes everything so much worse. It's such a good reason to hydrate, to wash your hands, to do all these things for me so that I can continue to sleep on my Helix mattress where all of my great sleep comes from. And frankly, where a lot of my not getting sick energy comes from, from all the great sleep that I get. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash majority54 with Helix. Better sleep starts now. All right, I mentioned last time on the podcast that I was actually about to sign up for them because I was so compelled by what they were offering. And since then, I've now signed up for Rocket Money. And this is just an absolutely mind-blowingly awesome personal finance app. It used to be called Truebill. It's a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Your mind could be blown at just how much frivolous stuff that you've signed up for you that you might not even notice because maybe it was on this credit card that you haven't you know thought you've used in a while or it's getting debited straight out from your bank account or it's rolled up in a couple other different ways that you didn't notice before. But they don't just stop there. They help you monitor your spending and set goals. And so it's a really useful tool even after you've unsubscribed from the stuff that you need to unsubscribe from. So stop throwing your money away, cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash M54. That's rocketmoney.com slash M54. Rocketmoney.com slash M54. And now let's turn to our conversation with Deshante Parks. Deshante Parks is the founder and CEO of 1000 More. She has decades of experience in communication and political strategy for public, private, and nonprofit organizations. She has worked on federal, state, and local elections, including on U.S. Senate campaigns for Senators Mary Landro and Kamala Harris, and Senator Not Me, because I wasn't a senator, but she worked on my campaign, uh, and we got a silver medal, and she did a wonderful job. Uh, she completed a Master of Public Policy degree at the Harvard Kennedy School, which I've heard of, I heard it's good, and has contributed to several published works about the roots of propaganda in America and combating misinformation. Deshante, good to see you. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Well, so many of the listeners to our podcast are like super civically involved people. Uh, You've done a lot of work to just give us a window into what American civic participation looks like right now and maybe where it's heading. Can you give us just top line observations about? how Americans are participating in civic life today compared to where they were and maybe what the future holds? Yeah. So even very civically engaged Americans typically 
vote every two or four years, and then they don't check in with their elected official in the middle. And so I've created a way to make it easier for regular people to contact their elected officials about every bill that's coming up for a vote and to read about those bills. With a thousand more, you get super short summaries written at a third grade level because 54% of American adults read below a sixth grade level. So that in itself is, you know, a barrier of entry for lots of people. And so I've, you know, created a way where you can share one link and your friends, family across the country with one link can read a summary about the bill, nonpartisan, super short, and contact their elected officials, figure out who they are, contact them. They can call, email, tweet. Um, They also can donate to an organization that's advocating for the bill in the way that they indicate is their position. Because together, when we crowdfund our dollars, we are bigger than the big lobby. We spend more money on GoFundMe than the big lobby spends every year on the Hill. Yeah. What I like about your approach is I think people tend to, and, and I've at times I've emotionally been in this place where you just kind of get frustrated with voters. You're like, how come you're not participating more? How come people don't care more? But then if you take a step back and ask just how complicated our system is, given this federal system we have. Like I live in New York where you've got city council member, state assembly member, state senator, borough president, lieutenant governor, you can go on, attorney general, district attorney. I'm somebody who works in politics and have a law degree, and I can't keep track of who all these people are and what their jobs are. And often when you ask them what their jobs are, they point in the other direction if blame is going around. But when whatever credit's going around, everybody's raising their hand <laughs> saying they did it. So it's rather confusing for people. You know, I think a lot of people feel like, and this happens with everything, but people feel like, oh, it didn't used to be this way because people have a tendency to idealize the past, right? We we become nostalgic, and this is true of literally everything in American life. But I'm I'm curious, has this become more complicated? Like the distance between the average person and their elected officials, the sense of inaccessibility in government? Like, is is this how it's always been in America? And these sort of bridges have always needed to be built? I mean, obviously, for folks who were literally disenfranchised, they needed to be. But for those who were enfranchised, has this distance always been there? Or is it worse? I was just going to say this is so loaded because, you know, one thing I like to talk about is just talk about a couple generation difference in my community. I'm black for the Mm -hmm. listeners who can't tell. (laughs) My name is Deshante. Um, But, you know, so in our communities, for example, this brilliant woman economist, black woman economist, Jacoba Williams, did a study where she found that in the towns where there were higher numbers of lynchings, there were still lower numbers of um, black voter registration still to this day, to this day. And so that tells us that generationally, these things take time. And Jason, you know this, like when you're on a campaign, you have to touch voters three times before you're sure that you're going to get their vote. Um, And so we're talking about two very different Americas. So you know, for the people who literally a couple generations ago, and so my grandmother's generation, my grandmother picked cotton in Shreveport, Louisiana until she was 10 years old. And she was 85 when she passed away a few years ago. So my family is 77 years removed from the plantation. Um, You know, for her, it got much easier in her lifetime. And then you have, you know, I'm her granddaughter and I was raised being told like, you know, politics is important. It's a very powerful mechanism in our country. And that's why I got involved in civic engagement. I understand that. But there are lots of people from my community who still feel like it is out of reach, like that power is out of reach. And I think 
a huge part of it is the education system. So there are communities that are well-funded that get good schools and those students get good educations. And those are oftentimes white communities. And then there are other communities, Black and Latino and other, you know, brown communities that are underfunded and those students aren't getting as good of an education. So if you're not getting a good education and a good civic education, then it is very easy to, one, not even know that you have this power and two, feel like I'm not even smart enough to make those decisions for my own community. And that's one thing that I try to encourage people all the time to just trust themselves. I think we do know what's best for our communities. And that's why, you know, after people read a little bit about the bill in the app, we actually provide a script because sometimes it's as simple as, especially if people are like first generation Americans or or just came here and they feel like their English isn't very good. They're like, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to take me seriously, but they will because you are a constituent. Um, And so we provide a little script to just help prompt the conversation. I I think what you were saying a minute ago about you know, writing this stuff at a third grade level, it's so important and nobody ever talks about it. It reminds me actually of, and I, you may remember this, of a day on the campaign trail uh, where you were staffing me. And I had this joke that I would routinely do. It was kind of one of my go-to jokes because when I ran for the Senate, I was 34 and, you know, I looked even younger than that. And so I would stand up in front of a lot of crowds and I would make this joke that, you know, I'm 34 years old, but I read at a 40-year-old level. And I had been making this joke at a lot of campaign stops. And then uh, one day you and I were uh, actually about to address, I was about to stand up and uh, address a group of leaders in a part of Kansas City that was not well served, that you know were educated in schools, just like what you described, that they, they were older gentlemen who grew up in segregated schools and they were leaders in their community and they were doing great things in their community and they had a lot of power and influence in their community. So I didn't even think twice about getting up and making that exact same joke to start out my remarks. But for the first time, it landed really flat and people just kind of looked at me like that didn't make any sense. And then afterwards, when I sat back down, you leaned over to me and you were like, a lot of these people don't read. Uh, And it it had never occurred to me and I felt terrible about it. Um, But it's, that really stuck with me. And so I just, I bring it up because you're one of the few people in politics I've ever heard actually talk about the importance of spelling out what's going on in the world in a way, literally spelling it out in a way that it's accessible to everybody. And this is why we need more people of color, especially women of color in positions like the one I was on, on your campaign. I was a political director. There are very few um, black women, senior staffers in politics, even in the democratic party. And that's why I think you know, this app, it came to me in a dream, the idea for the app, I saw the whole thing in a dream. And that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been raised in the family that I had been raised in where my grandmother would read the paper every morning, but she would spell out that she would like sound out the words, and she would struggle with certain words, and she would ask me to help her read. And so I think that that, you know, of course, it bred a certain like, empathy within me, um, but also just I have a reality that maybe, you know, like you said, you just didn't see it before. All right. So this next question actually comes from Matt, uh, one of our listeners who sent in an email. And I won't read the whole email, but he's asking, um, he's a resident of New York 3. And he greatly appreciated our discussion about George Santos. Thank you, Matt. 
And he definitely didn't vote for him and never would if he makes it far enough in his term to go for re-election. But he's asking what he can do in the meantime and what can do and what could one do when their member of Congress is not only in the other party, but also such a fraud and a pathological liar. He asked, do I just continue to contact his office and ask him to resign? I guess the question is like, what is your advice as somebody who specializes in, in helping people stay engaged all year round? Like, what is your advice to people who they're represented by somebody who may not care what they have to say? Yeah. I mean, the truth is, at the end of the day, it's transactional. Your vote keeps them in their job. And if it becomes clear that enough people don't want them in that job, they will lose their job. And so, you know, people rally around certain pieces of legislation and Sometimes what we'll see, I think oftentimes right now, what we see is lobbyists have more influence because they're doing that more often. But if we speak up more often and in larger numbers, we can impact these votes because they do answer to us ultimately. Um, And so I specifically mean calling their office, Um, even if you don't agree with them as a person, (laughs) as a leader, um, you know, you still can influence their vote. And that's all you can really do before re-election is try to influence each vote. In terms of getting him removed from that seat, I think potentially, a you know, a large public outcry. I think we're already seeing talks about that. Um, I think that his party needs to step in and take um, a more strong stance on that and, and make sure that that happens. But if he's going to stay in office, my advice is, to try to influence the votes and rally your community around the votes that are most going to impact your life and actually pick up the phone and call them. And 1000 more makes it really easy to do that. And sort of last question, what was it? Last question on the other side of this, you know, not just like when you're a constituent who has, you know, somebody who may or may not be listening to you, but really like for members of Congress, for local elected officials, you know, one of the things that you've done in your career is you've helped those people, including those in office, actually stay in touch. Uh, or even if not in office, you know, they're, the political party stay in touch with voters. Because as you mentioned at the outset of this conversation, there are so many people who say, you know, I only hear from these folks around election time. And it's true. I mean, not only do they only hear from these folks around election time, but the go-betweens, like the staffers, the the party officials, they change every two years. So it's incredibly difficult to maintain that relationship. So I'm just curious, you know, in your consulting work and that kind of thing, what what's your advice to people either in office or just in the movement who want to keep people engaged all the time? Yeah, no, that's such a great question. Um, so it's really important to note that staffers are oftentimes overworked. Um, Like a state Senate office sometimes only has two constituent services people, one in D.C. and one in the state. Um, And that's why it's important to bring this democracy into the 21st century, because technology could help us do this better. And a thousand more is a solution for that, for staying in touch every day. Um, There is a separate interface that elected officials can see. They can see in real time how their constituents are telling them to vote on these bills Um, and they can message them as well. And so it's just important to note that one, staffers are overwhelmed. I don't think a lot of times that elected officials are doing it on purpose. I think they have a lot of jobs to do, but they should as much as possible be proactively reaching out to their constituents. Um, And that's something that I tell I've worked with lots of like municipal agencies and like you said, the state party and, you know, candidates, elected officials. And 
I always just tell them communications is a two-way street. I can't even tell you what to say to your constituents until we first hear what your constituents want to talk about what they need to hear, where the pain points are. So I, I start every, you know, engagement that I have with first, let's just go listen. Let's just go talk to people. And I think more elected officials and more staffers need to take that position. I think they need to realize that communications is first about listening. Professional communications work is like less about the press release and more about going into the community and listening. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, tell people where they can find the app and tell people where they can find you. Yes, go to 1000more.org and you can find the app and you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. Um, and I am at D-S-E-A-N-T-E at Deshante on Twitter and Instagram. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I know this app is super new, but really I, it's gonna like make this democracy way more inclusive and much easier for people. And um, just thank you. Glad to be on the on the front end. All right, now you've uh, waited the entire episode for this major announcement that we're going to make. Uh, so thanks for hanging around. Um, here's the announcement: we are taking Majority Fifty Four in a new direction, and here's what that means. The first part of it is is that for you as a listener nothing's really going to change. We're going to take a couple weeks off. I'm going to get into that in a second, but nothing's really going to change. This feed where you get our podcast, whether it is you know on Apple or Spotify, wherever you get it, you're still going to get it here. Uh, you're still going to be able to listen to Ravi and I. That's not going to change. It's really more like we're leveling up. And that level up is we are going to add a major YouTube element to the show. Uh, this is going to be a podcast that is also a YouTube show. Uh, my, I keep trying to impress my son by telling him I'm going to become a YouTuber. So far, unless I become a gamer or a trick shot guy, that doesn't seem to impress him. But Nonetheless, we're going to be YouTubers and this podcast will be available as a podcast, but also as a YouTube show, because as we record it, we will film that and put that put that up. We will frequently do it live. And the downside to this, of course, is that it means we are saying goodbye to Wonder Media Network as our production company. And we have had uh, just an awesome couple of years with Wonder Media Network. Uh, you know, Grace and Edie and Adesua and Sarah um, and the rest of the team have been outstanding. And we're still going to be, uh, you know, talking about their shows and we're still going to be working with them on some things. But um, we will be leaving them as as our production company. But for you, the listener, nothing changes other than you're going to also see us on YouTube. Uh, now, we are going to take a break for two or three weeks here um, because Ravi and I, frankly, we have to go to YouTube school. We have to sort of figure out what this looks like and get ready to launch it. Um, but you're still going to be able to find us where you've always found us. You have to. I have to get my Botox in injection and, uh, <laughs> you know, what do they do? I'm just kidding. I don't even know. Uh yeah, what do we do? I, uh, I I I need to do like some of that tanning spray, but that's that's the announcement. Um, so we're going to take a brief hiatus, like three weeks or so, uh, you know, give or take a week or two, and then you'll hear from us here again on this exact same feed. Ravi, any final words about that? I think I, I just want to shout out the team at Wonder. Uh, looking forward to working with them in a new capacity. We'll talk probably more about that over time, but there's like plenty of 
opportunities for us to continue that relationship. And the team has been so amazing and just grateful to our audience for getting us this far. And and part of the reason why we're doing this is you and I talked about almost like renewing our vows, like to, in some ways, like mixing it up in a new medium pushes us to be a little bit more creative and break the mold of how we've been doing things. And actually worth mentioning, our audience knows a lot about this kind of stuff. So if you have ideas about how we can use the YouTube platform, like what are you looking for that could be potentially tackled over a visual medium, right? Like something that we wouldn't be able to do through traditional podcasting. Let us know. Um, we'd be happy to consider it. All right. Uh, we will talk to you in a few weeks. Until then, as always, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. The show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, Adesua Agbenile, and Sarah Schleed. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.